Some of you might be thinking that after you graduate high school, you might attend one of these fine Ivy League institutions. What would it actually take to get into an Ivy League university? Well, you of course know that you have to have stellar grades, and that's all expected. You have to have lots of extracurricular, and you know that much as well. But what about your SAT? How how would your SAT have to be? Call out a number. What do you think you'd have to get in order to put yourself in the potential rankings of someone who could attend a school like this? If you got a 1580, you would be in the top 25% of potential candidates to attend an Ivy League university. 1580. I mean, you all said 1,600, which, I mean, you you might as well. If you're going to be in the top 25% and it's it's a 1580, that means I don't know how much higher you'd go with the perfect score. But what about an ACT? Give me the number for ACT. 35. That's exactly right. 35. Impressive scores to get into the university. Now, let's just say for a second, you actually did get these radical scores and and you made it possible to go to the university. And they send you a letter. They said, hey, we'd like to congratulate you. You're accepted to Brown or to Harvard or one of these places. What would it actually cost you per year to get your undergraduate degree? Too much is the right answer. But let's just for yucks talk about actual numbers. The average, the average tuition and fees for one of these institutions is $53,611, which puts you at a grand total of $214,444 to get your undergraduate degree at one of these fine institutions. Who's in? Anybody? Anyone? Okay. No one? Okay. Well, obviously, if you get some grants and other things, it's going to be a little cheaper. But what about this? Let's talk about specifically Harvard. Looked at their their website. And for the 2019-2020 school year, um, the the fees are only $47,730 for tuition only. So that's much more reasonable. That's the cost. That's the Walmart brand of Ivy League universities. So 47730 But if you're going to add the fees on top of that, that's another $4,195. And then if you're going to stay on campus, which most people are going to do that, that's only another $17,682, which brings you to $69,607 per year, which you might as well sell a couple of your kids in advance to <laughs> afford that kind of education. The question you'd have to ask at this point is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to spend that much money to invest so much of your time and energy getting into a place like this and and then spend another $70,000 on top of that? And then, of course, the rigor of academic pursuit is way high level. So if you're taking IPs, uh, <laughs> IBs and APs, well, if you do them both together, it's IP. That's, you don't know that. That's the special class. But if you're taking those classes, you, you might still find yourself struggling to stay in the upper echelons of the GPA for schools like this because their academics are so rigorous. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And the only way you could possibly answer yes to that is if you have a really good reason for attending these schools, and perhaps maybe they even give you a scholarship. But otherwise, it's going to be really hard to argue for this being a good idea for most of us who are common folk. And there's nothing wrong with being common folk. Is it worth it? That's the question I want you to ask this morning as we work our way through Mark chapter 8. This is the question that Jesus expects to answer for you in today's text. Because here's the thing, being a Christian is free. You get into the club completely, 100% free, based upon what Jesus has done. But when it comes down to the actual work behind being a Christian, the cost is astronomically expensive. It's way beyond what most people are willing to pay. And so we have to ask the question, why is it worth it in Jesus' mind to do this? And in fact, for some of you today here, I know the question for you is still, is it worth it? 
Pastor, I've heard you preach before about stuff like this, and I've counted that it's not worth my effort. I don't want to lose my friends. I don't want to lose my music. I don't want to lose this, this, and this. And so therefore, it's not worth it. But Jesus is going to help you think about this the right way. And often, a lot of people your age get it wrong, not because they're not thinking about the cost the right way. They're thinking about the trade-off the wrong way. That's where you get it wrong. Before we talk about the cost, which is the title of the sermon, Jesus is going to get us in the right direction by helping us focus on why the cost makes sense. Now, you might remember last week we were talking about Peter, right? Peter, uh, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter answers on behalf of the disciples and the other apostles, and he says, we know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus gives the attaboy, you know, the old pat on the bottom saying, good job, Peter, you got it. You got it. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Then things take a turn for the worst. Uh, But before that, Jesus says, now, by the way, don't tell anyone what you just said. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, you're correct, but don't tell anybody. Last week, someone asked, well, why not? Why wouldn't Jesus tell everybody? That's the point that he's there, right? Son of man came uh, not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If that's why he came, why would he not tell people that? Well, the reason why is the reason you're about to read, and that's that the, con- the conception of who the Messiah was was vastly different than who the Messiah actually is, namely Jesus. So here's the heels of what we just came off of. Peter confesses Christ. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And now we enter into our text together. Please join me. Mark chapter 8, we're going to do a lot of circling and underlining and a lot of Bible versing today, so I need you to stay with me, okay? If you stay with me, you'll understand this text far better than you do right now. But if you get lost, it's going to be a big blob. Hang with me. Here we go. Mark chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Now stop right there and let's just look at that first verse. Actually, we looked at the verse and a half. Okay, so first of all, notice that this is on the heels of what just happened. Peter saying that, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. And remember, I told you last week, that's the pinnacle of Mark. Everything after this is now changing because now Jesus knows that his people know who he is. He's now going to say, now this is what it means. You know who I am. You say, yes, you're the Lord. But what does that actually mean for them? Now he says, he began to teach them. He's now saying, okay, I'm going to lay down tracks for you. You need to understand what this actually means. You guys don't understand me the right way. Because here's what he has to say. Not only does the son, am I the son of man, the Messiah, but I am the son of man. By the way, son of man, where does that come from? Someone call it out. Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Talks about the son of man who is exalted. He's ruling. He's powerful. The son of man. Okay, keep that in your mind. We're going to put that on a pin for a second. We're going to come back to that. He's the son of man, but contrary to everything you have believed, disciples, he must Suffer many things. That looks like I crossed it out. Let's try that again. Suffer many things. The first thing that the Son of Man comes to do is to suffer. And not only that, he must be rejected. He's not a guy who's going to be uh, well embraced and loved by everybody. He's rejected. And get this, he's not rejected by the scum. He's not rejected by the murderers and the rapists and all the people that you would expect to reject him. He's not rejected by the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the varsity football players. He's just kidding. He's He's rejected by the religious elites. He's rejected by people who should know far better than anybody else. But yet, he's rejected by people that that make up some of the most powerful people in the community. In fact, let's talk about who those people are really quick. The elders. The elders refers to the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 Pharisees and Sadducees. They're lay leaders within the community, but they're powerful people. They're influential. They're influential. 
There's 70 people who the, the community holds in high esteem. They're educated. They're thoughtful. They're prominent. And, and the Sanhedrin is, a, is, a, is an assembly of those people who make up the religious and political powerhouse of the day. How do we know that? Well, take a look. Not only is it the elders of the community, but the chief priests. Does anyone remember the name of the chief priest who is overseeing Jesus' death, or rather his, his crucifixion? You have two guys who are named, Annas and Caiaphas. These two men represented the family of chief priests. And so not only were the elders there, but the powerful, high-ranking chief priests. And not only that, you have the scribes. Pop quiz, who are the scribes? I've said this before. Scribes were the experts of the, the law. And I said to you that he's a lot like Rob Kelly, our resident lawyer. Scribes are experts of the law. They, were, they would be part of the Sanhedrin in order to say, yes, you're understanding the law correctly. As far as we know, this is what you should do with someone who, who commits these kind of violations. And so the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes all band together to form what is called the Sanhedrin. Good, I'm glad you're listening over here. Someone said that. Sanhedrin. So the powerful religious people of the time reject Jesus. And then not only that, Jesus says, I got to suffer, I got to be rejected, and then I got to be killed. It's not enough that they simply put him aside, but they're going to they're gonna murder him. And then at this point, I'm guessing the apostles no longer hear him because I don't think they even brought up the question about coming back to life again three days later. And so what you have in this first text here is Jesus really radically shaking the foundations of what they used to believe. Because here's the thing, young person, you and I look at this text and say, well, it's obvious Jesus is supposed to die and rise again. We know that. You've heard that from preschool. But here's the problem with that. Why did everybody miss this? Why did everyone suddenly just not see this plain reality for us? And that's what it says here. Jesus said this to them plainly. He's not using parables. He's not using analogies. He's saying this in plain, broad daylight. Why did they miss this? Why did all the Pharisees and all the Sadducees and all the religious, how did they miss this? Were they that dumb? Well, part of it, as we said last week, has to do with the fact that spiritual awareness and spiritual sight comes from God himself. He has to open their eyes. But let's think about this for a second. In all the Old Testament, like even the, the Son of Man, Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, it talks about a, man, a Son of Man who's high and exalted, a ruler. Think about all the Messianic texts that you and I both know about. What do those Messianic texts generally teach? talks about a coming one who is strong, he's mighty, he's powerful. He's a, he's a military leader, he's a political leader. Uh, in Christmas, we talk about the, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He'll be called the son of God, mighty counselor, I mean, wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's exalted, he's high, he's lofty. So it's not surprising then that when the Jews saw, when the Jews saw Jesus, he doesn't fit that description. He's the exact opposite of what we're looking for. He comes in riding a donkey. He's not stirring up controversy with the Romans. In fact, he's paying taxes to them. He's not doing anything we expect. And so therefore, he cannot be the Messiah. If you look throughout your Bible, what you'll notice is two prominent figures that are predicted. The first figure is the Messiah himself. But there's a second figure called the servant, the suffering servant. The prominent figure of the Messiah is seen as the one who would conquer, who would rule, and who would reign. Everyone understood that. This second fuzzy figure here called the suffering servant, we were less sure about. They were less sure about what he would actually do and what his role and purpose was, which is why for these guys, they weren't expecting suffering servant. They were expecting mighty Messiah. Do you see what the problem is here for them? They're seeing two figures, and they're not realizing that those two figures are, they're one. 
They're the same guy. And even more than that, what they didn't realize that you and I now realize is that there was going to be two comings of said Messiah. The first coming when he would be meek, lowly, born in a manger, and then the second coming when he does what? He conquers. He rules. Revelation talks about the second coming of Messiah where his robe is dipped in blood from crushing his enemies. Jesus comes the first time. He's meek, mild, and lowly. Jesus comes a second time, and he's angry. He's mad at sin, and he will vanquish and crush every single enemy that stands in his path. You can see why it's difficult for the Israelites to look at this man and say, I don't get it. Why is he? he, he he's clearly a miracle worker. Remember John chapter 3, Nicodemus said, we know that you are someone from God. We know that you're a man from God because no one can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. But Nicodemus didn't understand. Jesus said, you have to be born again and enter my kingdom. He says, what are you talking about? Diverting the conversation elsewhere. But Nicodemus was confused because Jesus clearly had the power, clearly had the miracles, and yet he's not acting the way he's supposed to. Remember John the Baptist, when he's in prison, he says, are you the one who is to come or should we be looking for another? Even John was confused by Jesus' arrival. This is why when you look at texts like this, it's important for you to feel the context and not just see it with your eyes. Because for us, when we look at this, it's so obvious, but for them, it took some time and some understanding. Now, here's what happens. Jesus says, Peter, guys, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. The disciples probably step back and say, looking at each other, like, for, for what? What's he talking about? And then Peter, because he's really the spokesperson for the apostles, I, I, I sense it's kind of something like this. He might have put his arm around Jesus and took him aside and said, hell, we'll be right back, guys. Let me just have a word with Jesus. Maybe he squares him up and says, Jesus, you're wrong. <laughs> you're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. You're going to be fine. You're going to rule and reign. I've read the text about you. Daniel chapter 7, you're quoting Son of Man all the time. You're going to rule and reign. You're going to crush your enemy. Peter, rebu- do you see that word? Peter rebukes him. That is a strong word. Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, imagine a pregnant pause in that moment. If you're Jesus and you're looking at Peter here who's just shaking you saying, Jesus, no, this is wrong. You're going to change. You're not going to think this. You're not going to believe this. You can imagine Jesus just taking a breath and looking at his disciples and the others who are with him, looking around and saying, okay, strategic move now. What do I do? Jesus turns around and switches the tables over. And he just momentarily, just moments ago, paid him a massive compliment. And now look what happens. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. The word rebuke is a strong one. He rebuked Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter is now the mouthpiece of the devil. And then look what he says, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting your mind on the things of, you think he might say Satan, right? Because that's what he just said. You're setting your mind on the things of man, which is to say that Satan's thinking and man's thinking is the same. For the the unsaved person, Satan's thinking and man's thinking, same thing. Peter gets rebuked strongly. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're totally wrong about this. And he makes sure that everybody hears that and sees that. He's about to get into a conversation that you and I desperately need to hear. But what we're going to do in our first point here is make a massive observation about what what is taking place. Jesus is laying the foundation and the groundwork for what he's just about to say. Now, here's what you have to understand. For you to understand points two and three of this sermon, you have to get point number one, okay? 
Point number one, then. We can't look at this and just say, oh, cool, that was nice of Jesus to say that. He died and all that stuff. No, we have to look at this and realize what a marvel this is. What awe-inspiring, life-changing, perspective-altering truth this is. You and I ought to marvel at the plan of salvation. We ought to see what Jesus does and see it as something miraculous, amazing, jaw-dropping, because that's exactly what it is. And that's why Peter rebuked Jesus. Jesus, you're not doing it the right way, he says. Oh, we had a marvel at that. I was marveled earlier this week. I was reading a newspaper. Well, actually, it was, I was online, but you know, The Guardian. It was online, The Guardian website. And I came across this headline that blew my mind. Blew my, it made me marvel because it feels like science fiction. I used to think that Back to the Future was like the super cool science fiction-y movie, but I think we're living in the future right now. Here's why. I came across this article that says, scientists may have crossed ethical line in growing human brains. Okay, now here, here, here we go. That, that alone sounds intriguing, right? But let, let me give you a reason why you ought to marvel at this. They're concerned that they're crossing ethical lines because the lab brains that they're, that they're growing are showing signs of sentience, awareness. The kind of sentient awareness that a newborn baby in a mom's belly might have. Brain waves suddenly spiking and showing activity. It's, did you hear? It's a lab-grown brain. Tell me we're not living in the future. That's amazing. And here's the ethical dilemma. If these brains are sentient and aware, can they feel pain? And if they can feel pain... Do we have any right to destroy them when we're done testing them? Put that in your textbook and read it. I caught myself. <laughs> I caught myself. Think about that for a second. So this is mind-blowing. This is the future. We're living it right now. And this is the kind of stuff that just makes your jaw drop and say, wow, where, what are we doing? You can look it up. It's on, it's on The Guardian. It doesn't go into a whole lot of detail, but it's, it's fascinating, really. But here's the thing, when we marvel at the plan of salvation, uh, when we don't marvel at the plan of salvation, because we're not understanding it the way we're supposed to, I want to point out one little word that you read but may have passed over quickly. Jesus said, here's what's M-U-S-T, here's what must take place for me. And we're going to look at those musts really quickly. Rapid fire. Must. Jesus must suffer. I said that. In fact, let me just give you all four so you can write them down quickly. Just put Jesus must and then put those four things down. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must rise again. This is the must of salvation. We're about to get real musty in the next few verses here. <laughs> the musts are important because it's not that uh, Jesus should do this. It's not that Jesus even will do this. It's Jesus must do this. This is uh, the, the word, it is necessary. That's the word that conveys this is something that cannot be broken. It has to take place. Why? Well, because Jesus understood that God the Father foretold this. This was something God planned and it was going to take place. Where was Jesus? Ow, I got a splinter. Where was Jesus looking? Where was Jesus looking to understand this fascinating reality? It's not coming out. This fascinating reality. Jesus was a student of the Old Testament. And there's a couple texts he might be looking at to, to really get this. But I submit to you that really, <laughs> this is painful. What he's really looking at is one particular text. You ready? We're going to go there together and we're going to go rapid fire, buckle your seatbelts. We're going to look at Isaiah 53. We're only looking at 10 verses really quick, but all of these musts, keep these musts in mind, because these musts are what he's looking at in the text of Isaiah 53, saying this is what has to happen for me to do my job well, for me to follow God's plan. Here we go. Isaiah 53, 
look, keep an eye out for these four musts. Okay, here they go. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, so first you have an insight. Isaiah, writing six, seven hundred years before, Jesus says, okay, when the Messiah comes, or rather the suffering servant comes, who's going to believe him? Who's going to understand that the arm of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord, is actually here in this man? Why? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. These are the humble beginnings of the Messiah. And so you see, he's coming out of a place like nowhere. He's coming out of Nazareth. He's not, he's not coming from a noble family. He's not royalty, at least not out of the gate anyway. Yeah, no one sees him as being someone that is standing head and shoulders above everybody else. He's not like Dave Averill, who's so tall that it's obvious he should be a leader. He's not like Saul, who was very similar, stood head and shoulders above everybody else. So when it came time to elect a king, they're like, oh, Saul's the man. He's clearly, he's, he's handsome, he's powerful, he carries himself well, he's the man. He's saying Jesus is not that guy. He's ordinary. Jesus is the kind of guy that would not stand out in a crowd. He's rather, un, uh, uh, rather usual. This is what Isaiah, 2, or Isaiah 53 is talking about when it talks about who the Messiah would be or who the, the suffering servant would be. And this is one of the verses that people point to when they say Jesus was ugly. I don't, think that's what, I don't think that's what's happening here. He had no form of majesty, no beauty that we should desire him. Again, he's just not the upstanding, you know, most handsome guy in the class. He's not going to be voted most likely to, to succeed in Sabbath school. He's an ordinary guy. Brilliant, to be sure. Brilliant, because he's, he's a son of God. But again, he's not the kind of guy that people are going to just turn around and say, oh, look at that handsome dude. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Okay, notice the tense of verse 3. Look at it. What, what tense is verse 3 written in? And yet, where is it looking toward? Future. Future prediction written in past tense. Why? Because God's word is so strong and so sure that it might as well be past tense. If he writes it, it's done. It's called, this is the prophetic perfect, the, the sense in which this is already done even if it's not accomplished. So when Isaiah writes it 600 years prior, he's saying he was despised and rejected by men. There's, there's, there's one of the must right there. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see both the, the rejection of Jesus in here and some of the uh, predicted suffering. So he's not the kind of guy that is gonna be well embraced He's acquainted with grief and sorrows. Not to say Jesus didn't laugh. He didn't have a good time. He, one of his first miracles was at the wedding of uh, Cana, where he multiplied the, the, or he created wine out of nothing, water actually. But he, he's acquainted with grief and sorrow because why? He is going to adopt and bear the sins of all of us. And so he knows what it is to be acquainted with grief and sorrow. Despised, we didn't esteem him not. Uh, meaning to Israel, when they saw their suffering servant, they didn't give him the benefit of the light of day. Oh, he's just, just Jesus from Nazareth. Yeah, he does some cool stuff, but he's not the Messiah. He's not the one we're looking for. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten, uh, stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Let me translate this for you. Jesus is the one who would be our suffering servant. He would die on our behalf, but we thought he was cursed by God. When we saw him the first time, he was the kind of guy that we said, that guy's clearly cursed because whoever hangs on a tree is cursed by God. His crucifixion proves God didn't accept him. God rejected him. And this is Israel looking back now saying, man, we, we should have seen this. We should have understood this. But he was, and here we go, crucifixion. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
This is the beauty of what is called penal substitutionary atonement. This is penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus suffering on our behalf in order to atone for our sins. This is predicted six, seven hundred years before Jesus comes. It even tells you how he's going to die. He's being pierced. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, all of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at the beginning of verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Pop quiz, are humans inherently good? Give me some conviction. Pop quiz, are humans inherently good? No. No. And that's why when you guys ask questions like, is it fair that God would condemn a man in the middle of nowhere when he never has the chance to respond to the gospel? That's a tough question. It's a tough question because when, when, no matter how you answer that, you sound like the bad guy or you make God out to be the bad guy. Here's the thing. A lot of people can say, well, the guy in the middle of nowhere who never hears the gospel, what if he's a good guy? You know, what if he just doesn't know that he should respond to Jesus? What if he's, uh, he's nice to his family? He's an upstanding individual in his community. You know, he gets water for the kids or whatever it is. He's a nice guy. Why would God send that man to hell? And the reason you have to ask that is because you don't understand God's goodness. You take God's goodness, which is perfect, righteous, and perfectly just, and you lower it down to your level. Goodness becomes a relative term that you decide what is good or bad. Here's the thing. Because God is good, and this is absolutely true of all of us, that means every single one of us in this room, every single person in this room deserves God's righteous wrath. Can you agree with that for a second? Do you, do you believe that? Because it's, it's more than this room. Every single human being on earth, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned from the shepherd and we've rejected him in order to embrace our own selfish autonomy. I want to be God. And that's the problem. Because it's not our relative goodness that makes us right before God. You know that. It's the fact that all of us have sinned. Uh, there, there's a sense, there's a term in the, theology that says we're all depraved. We're, all, we're not as bad as we could be. We're all not as bad as we could be. We're all not Hitler, but we're bad. God condemns those who deserve hell because all of us deserve hell. Sure, you're in Compass Bible Church, or maybe you've been coming a long time, and you've had the opportunity to respond to the gospel over and over and over again. But is that because God somehow feels compel compelled to do that for you? Because you deserve that? Because you've earned that? No. You don't deserve the gospel any more than anyone else does. That's why it's called grace. God's arm is not being twisted and saying, okay, 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 I'll give him an option. God, by his own goodness, his own free will, God's the only one who has free will, and even then he's compelled to be free according to his, perfect, his perfections. He offers you the gospel merely out of his goodness and grace, not because he has to, you understand, because then it's no longer grace. And just because you have the offer of the gospel and the guy in the middle of nowhere doesn't, does that make God bad? No. It just means that you have seen God's grace and you have the option to respond where so many people do not. But make no mistake, you and I and that guy in the middle of nowhere all deserve God's righteous wrath because all we like sheep have gone astray. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's quiet. 
the lamb represents innocence and purity. He sits there being sheared, his, his clothing being ripped off. You remember Jesus had his clothes ripped off, had his beard ripped off, and he's being prepared to suffer and die. And Jesus, of course, you know, he raises up his angelic army and crushes the enemy. No, he, he doesn't. He, he stays there and he's silent as he waits for the judgment from Pontius Pilate to condemn him. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This wasn't a just, a just judgment. It was a kangaroo court. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. No deceit in his mouth. Do you remember when Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin or the the religious authority? It wasn't the Sanhedrin at the time. He said, which of you accuses me of sin? You want to try that question with somebody? I don't recommend it. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Feel that. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then look at this next line right below it here. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. How? He's dead. Because the suffering servant will not stay dead. He will rise and he he will see his offspring and be glad. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So even though it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the will of the Lord would also prosper in his hand. There's a twofold understanding about God's will in this. God will crush him. It's his perfect plan. And God will raise him. That's also his perfect plan. Jesus, looking at this text, I'm sure can see this and say, this is my plan and purpose. This is why Jesus must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, must rise again. All of these musts are to point us to the fact that it's not just him doing it so that he can do it for his own sake. It's because, here's the thing, it's because you should suffer. You should be the one to suffer. You should be the one to be rejected. You should be killed and you should endure God's wrath. That's why it's marvel-worthy. And that's why everything Jesus is about to say makes total, absolute sense. Because we should suffer. We should be rejected. We should be killed. Our hair should be pulled out. We should be naked and whipped, ashamed of our sin. We should be nailed to the cross, having the inability to breathe, having people look at us as we're nakedly standing, I guess, on the cross, waiting for our lives to exit our bodies. We should be the ones. And then even more than that, it's not that just we deserve to die painfully. We deserve to be eternally removed from God. When we look at Jesus on the cross, you ought to look at him and say, that should be me. I should be on the cross. I should die. I should be spat on. I should be rejected. Jesus didn't die for his own sake. He had no sin to deal with. He died for our sake. It should be us up there. Now, the next two points are going to go rapid fire. But you have to start here. This is where we start when we look at the Christian life. Jesus paying the ultimate price to gain the ultimate bride. And that's where you and I fit in. Jesus now says some really remarkable things. He just confronts the, the, the disciples and the crowd and says, now, uh, or he says, Peter, you're wrong. I rebuke you. Now Jesus is about to say something that's going to drop the hammer like nothing else does. Here we go. 
Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, now this is everybody. So you got two people here, the crowd and the disciples. He's talking to anybody. He's talking to his own Christian followers, his believers, and he's talking to the, the crowd, everybody who would listen. And he said this, if anyone would come after me, let him, two things, deny himself and then take up his cross and follow me. Okay, so here's what's happening. The words follow me and, and come after me, they're the same. Those are the same words. So he's saying, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Sounds a bit weird to say that. But what he's, taking, what he's doing here is he's creating a sandwich. Following me looks like this. It's taking up your cross, being willing to die, and then uh, uh, and, and rejecting or denying yourself. Those two pieces of meat sit in the follow me sandwich, okay? We're going to come back to that. That's his major thrust. You want to follow me, Peter? You want to follow me, disciples? Here's what it looks like. Stop following yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, and do what I do. That's essentially what he's saying. And then he offers four reasons why this makes sense, okay? So unbeliever, this is for you. Believer, be reminded about what you're called to. You ready for this? Four reasons why you should do what he says. He says in verse 35, four, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Now I want you to notice two things there, my sake and the gospels. We're gonna come back to that. He says, for, verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For, what can a man give in return for his soul? The fourth four, we're going to say for point three. But I want you to notice some things in this text. The primary thrust, follow me, looks like denying yourself and taking up your cross. That's a sandwich, right? It gives you three reasons in this text why that makes sense. But here's the thing. As Christians, we can't look at this and see anything less than the call to be faithful to Christ. This is what faith looks like. How's your faith? When we say repent and believe the gospel, that word believe, this is what that looks like. Believing in Christ means that you're willing to throw everything at him and say, Christ, I have nothing to bring to you. You tell me whatever to do. I am yours. This is not works-based salvation. This is, I understand. You are the master. I am the slave. Whatever you want of me, Christ, so be it. This is what belief looks like, taking up your cross and following him. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Notice here, this is, not the kind of, uh, this is not the kind of following Christ that is just like, hey, I'm going to throw myself in front of a train and save my friends, and in that way, I'm, I'm giving up my life. That's not what saves you. If you, for some reason, become a hero, uh, maybe you save someone in the process, kill yourself. You, you, you become the hero, and you throw someone out of the train tracks, and yet you get obliterated by the train. That alone does not make you ready for heaven. When you die... God's not going to say, well, because you sacrificed your life for this other person, you get heaven. He's going to say, what did you do with my son? You had an opportunity. So Jesus says, if you're willing to lose your life for my sake in the gospels, this is not, this is not generalities. This is specific. Losing your life for the sake of Christ, for his sake and for the gospel's sake. This is looking at Jesus and saying, you're worth everything my life has to offer. It's looking at his words and saying, your words are like food to my soul. Whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do that. Anything short of that is faithlessness. It's denying Christ because you don't see him for what he is. In this transaction here, it's saying Christ is so worthy of all of us that our entire lives, our entire lives make sense to give to him because of everything we looked at in point number one, that Jesus has a marvelous salvation that he earns for us. Real faith looks like this. It means 
not saving your life in this, in this world, but losing it. Transaction, the cost, saving and losing. The life that you're saving that ultimately ends up losing your soul is the life that says, I want to live for me, my glory, my honor. And thus you lose what is most valuable to you, your soul. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Imagine getting everything you've ever wanted. In fact, let's say that you gain everything the world has. You're the king of the world. You're the queen of everything the world has to offer. At the end of your life, when you face God on judgment day, will he accept some kind of payment from you? Oh God, I have, I have trillions of dollars. Please accept this offering for my soul that I might go to heaven. And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. He says, does that make sense? If you get everything you want out of this life, does it make sense if you have everything in the world and lose your soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing, nothing. You give nothing in return for your soul. Young people, it is time to count the cost. Christians, you know what this means. It's time to re-examine and see whether or not we're actually faithfully following him. Non-Christians, I'm pleading with you this morning to think about what Jesus says. We're not doing altar calls. We're not going to have you come down the aisle. We're going to have you think about the terms and conditions that apply to following Christ. Sorry about that. It's not just about raising your hand and walking the aisle. This is about, first and foremost, rejecting living for yourself. This is what it means to deny yourself. If you're a Christian, you realize that denying yourself is not all doom and gloom. The self that you are denying is the self that is intent on killing itself, on murder, on suicide of the self. The self that you're denying is the self-destructive self. It's the self that says, I like to lust. I like to, I like to play video games all day. I like to do all these evil things because it feels good in the moment. The self that you're denying is the self that is intent on suicide. You have to ask yourself, is it really worth eternal death to be God of your temporary life? Jesus says it's not. Reject living for the glory of your name. Jesus said it also includes a relationship to everyone else in your world. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Does God want you to hate your parents and your family? Of course not. But he's saying when you look at your family, people will think that you hate them because of your allegiance to Christ. It's so great and so much grander than your love for your family that people will think you don't love your family at all. Because you realize you're not living for this world. You're not living for the glory of self or the glory of family. You're living for the glory of God. It also means to relinquish full control of your life. Taking up your cross means that you're suffering shame and reproach. In fact, taking up a cross, period, they knew what it meant to take up a cross. It means extreme, painful suffering. That's what it means to take up your cross. Jesus calls us to do this. This is, not, this is not meant to be a fluffy, easy life of rainbows and unicorns. Jesus calls us to say, your will and not my own. Jesus calls us to daily consider the cost of being in Christ. Daily. This means, okay, so practically speaking, you open up your Bible. I don't want to read my Bible today. I'm bored. Jesus would say, 
die, your, die to yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Don't give me excuses for why you won't read your Bible. I've died for you. I've given you everything I possibly could give. Can you not give me 25 minutes of your morning? This is why this makes sense. Only when you devalue salvation does any uh, sacrifice for the Christian faith become a burden. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Well, because you're not earning your salvation. You've been given it. And now he's saying, I'm calling you to myself as a relationship. Follow me. Do as I do. This makes sense when you understand what Christ has done for you. Relinquishing full control of your life means you no longer are able to do what you want to do. It's saying, God, I surrender. This is why Christians worship like this. We put our hands in the air and say, I surrender. You're the Lord, I'm the, I'm the servant, you're the master, I'm the slave. Whatever you want, God, so be it because you're the boss. Have you done that yet? Christians, is this your heart today? Is that the way that you think about Christ? That's clearly the way he thought about it. When Jesus is talking to the crowd, the people, the spectators, and his disciples, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't say, hey, if you want a better life, if you want to live in a happy, most fulfilled place, come to follow me, I'll take care of you. He does do some of that, but he doesn't mince words. It will cost you everything. Christian, is this your position toward Christ? Is this your heartbeat toward Christ right now? My future, my job, my spouse, my, my college, my career, my clothing, my talents, my time, my money. Take out the my and substitute that with the Lord's. That's what it means to relinquish full control, to daily take up your cross and follow him. I want to take the come after me and the follow me and add them together. Because I told you, it's a follow me sandwich, right? If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Come after me and follow me are the same word in the Greek. We're putting it together and we're saying point. The third subpoint is to determine to follow his lead, to know his scriptures, to believe what he says, to spend time with him and to consider him your Lord, your King, your guide, your everything. That's why I had suggested Ian sing the song, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. That is the Christian mantra. That's our rallying cry. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. It's not in my works. Jesus is my everything. Why does this make sense? Jesus doesn't just tell you, follow me. He gives you four compelling reasons why it makes sense for you. Let me just try to sum this up for you. The first compelling reason, you don't have a choice. You're in a burning building, jump. Take my hand, follow me, jump. Jesus is calling you to deny yourself so that you can save yourself. I'll tell you one thing, if, if we're in the 10th story of a building and the building's on fire, myself is not going to want to jump out of the window, right? You're not going to want to jump out of the window. But if I see firefighters down there, firemen who are holding that little trampoline thing and saying, jump, I'm going to have to deny myself and jump in order to save my life. The Christian life is winning by losing. That's how you win this life. You'll lose this life, the one that is bent, hell-bent on destruction, and I don't use that word cavalierly. It is literally hell-bent. Your soul is working its way toward hell, and Jesus is saying, save yourself. Deliver yourself. Jump. Because here's the thing. Whether or not you currently realize it, whether or not you're willing to believe it, you are going to die. Your body is going to be six feet under, rotting away, and you will face your Lord and your master, and you'll give an account for your life. 
Someone once said, life is short and eternity is long. Your life will be over like that. The Bible calls your life a mist, smoke, grass that fades in a moment. Your life is short, eternity is long. What are you doing with Christ? Christians, are you where you need to be? Have you denied yourself and taken up your cross today even? Non-Christians, please let me plead with you. It is not too late. At 12.26 on a Sunday, you can be right with Jesus right now. It will cost you everything. But it is worth far more than what it will cost you. This last verse I wanted to say for you because I thought it was powerful and it was worth giving time and attention. One last verse. Jesus says, this is the last four. Remember, I told you there's four reasons that he gives. This is the last four. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is coming back, and right now we have the opportunity to stand with him or against him. And he says, if you stand with me now, when I come back, I'm going to take you in and say, you're my sons, you're my daughters, I'm proud of you. But if we want to act like we don't know him and take a step back, when the harsh words of Scripture come out, and we pretend like, oh, this is crazy Christians, I'm not that, that's not me. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. If you're afraid to stand up for me and my words, I will deny you before the Father when I come back. Point number three, we ought to boldly confess allegiance to Christ. Probably one of the hardest things that it is to do because you know how people think about Christians. You know that when you tell people that you're a Christian, people suddenly get all weird around you and think, oh, you're one of those people. They hope that you're one of the progressive Christians who doesn't thump his Bible, doesn't think that she has it all figured out and others don't. They hope that you're the kind of Christian that will deny Jesus when it comes down to it in order to embrace a kind of global religion that everyone is happy and copacetic in. They want you to be the kind of person that is willing to compromise the clear truths of Scripture in order to fit into the culture. Jesus anticipates that. That's why he says, whoever is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, I'll be ashamed of. Boldly confess allegiance to Christ. You know what that looks like? That looks a whole, a whole lot like someone I heard about this week. You might have heard about this. This previously profane rapper puts out this album called Jesus is King, and suddenly what's trending on Twitter is hashtag Jesus is King. I love that. This guy is committing social suicide. Now, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. I, I don't claim that. But here's what I do know. The last song of his new album says that, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of the Father. That sounds like legitimate truth to me. I buy that. I'm with that. And that's why he's thinking, I don't care what people think about me. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel asked him, so are you a Christian rapper now? He says, no, man, I'm a Christian everything. Amen. That is the response of a Christian. I don't know if Kanye's Christian or not. You can, you can ask Yeezy later. But I do know this. He is responding like a Christian would. I no longer identify as a Christian fill in the blank. I am a Christian. That's my identity, no more, no less. That's what it looks like to boldly stand with Christ, to confess your allegiance to him and not waver when people start calling you out, saying you're one of those bigoted people. Here, <clears throat> excuse me. Here's what that looks like. Stand up for, for Christ and for truth. Don't be ashamed when people realize that you're a believer. I know some of you guys, and I love it, you're putting on your bio, you know, Philippians this, or, you know, I, I, Compass Bible Church in the, in, the, in the URL. I love that. But it's got to be more than that. We can't just be bio-Christians. 
We can't be willing to, to compromise anything or everything else in order to get likes or follows on Insta, TikTok, or whatever comes next. Our allegiance to Christ has to be so great and so strong that we're willing to wear it, not just on our, on our hands and, and, and rubber bands or whatever, but in our lives. I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. I don't care what anyone thinks about that. I care what Christ thinks. In fact, that's really the, the whole idea. Seek the approval of God, not others. When Jesus compares this generation to a sinful, adulterous generation, he's not talking about everyone committing adultery. He's saying the people of this generation love to deny the clear God in order to embrace another God, another idol. That's called spiritual adultery. And Jesus is saying, why are you seeking their approval? It would be like us saying, hey, uh, guys, I, I'm really working hard to get the approval of Nazis. So I'm wearing a swastika t-shirt. I'm saying Heil Hitler everywhere. You guys would right look at me and say, what an idiot. Why would he seek their approval? That's disgusting. That's Jesus' point. That's Jesus' point. Why are you trying to seek the approval of people who ultimately are going to be destroyed for their sin, their rebellion, their wickedness? Seek the approval of God, not others. And by the way, remember, remember who ultimately wins. You want a hint? Jesus wins case we forgot. To quote Kanye West and the Bible, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as I said before, every knee will bow, willingly bended or unwillingly broken. Jesus Christ is coming back and he will vanquish his enemies. Tomorrow, is the anniversary of a letter that was written by one of my personal heroes. And his quote is probably known by you. Here's a page out of his journal. That little section there that's underlined, that's the quote that everyone knows. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's amazing. That's Jim Elliott, who, as many of you know, died as a martyr, bringing the gospel to a people group that instead of receiving his offer of kindness, decided instead to kill him. There's a movie called The End of the Spear that tells a story where his son eventually would reach those people and the gospel would eventually come to those people. It's an amazing story. In fact, I would encourage you to watch that movie this weekend. End of the Spear, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott makes a, a, an astounding point and this ought to be our calculation this morning. You are not a fool, young person, to give this life, to lose this life, in order to gain eternal life with Christ. This, this life is fleeting and ending, but the next life is perfect, it's better, and it's worth giving everything for. I beg you, non-Christians, please stop waiting. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, not the next day. Today, you know this is true. Christians, are we living the way that God has called us to? Have we died to ourselves in order to live to Christ the way that we should? How's your Bible reading? How's your prayer time? True faith. True faith looks like what we just read. Dying to self, taking up our cross, and following Christ. Let's pray.